Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 159 with Jonathan Siegel of the Founder Podcast. Discover exactly what it takes to become a successful entrepreneur and what's possible through entrepreneurship from the greatest minds in business today. Welcome to the Founder Podcast. Here's your host, Nathan Chan. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm your host coming to you live from hometown, homegrown Melbourne, Australia. I hope you're all having a wonderful day wherever you are around the world. I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your earbuds with me. And uh, if you are new to the show, uh, we interview extremely successful founders from all across the globe that are number one or number two in the industry or if they've built something extremely disruptive and they're proven. They have disrupted industries. They've changed the world today as we know it. So before I jump in to talk about today's guest, I just wanted to give you guys a heads up that uh, we've just opened up our exclusive membership community founder club and I'd love for you to check it out and I'd love for you to think about joining. Why? Well, first of all, it's a, it's a closed Facebook group with really, really smart founders. Uh, if, you're, you know, if you've got a business, you're past you know, the 100K your annual revenue and you're looking to build a million dollar turnover online business, uh, that's the kind of person that we're looking to help. And we make it really, really interactive. We've got Q&As with really smart founders. Uh, there's actually opportunities. We'll feature someone on the magazine and podcast every quarter. We'll be running monthly sessions ourselves and the founder team on just sharing what's working now and all the tactics and strategies we're using to grow the business and everything that we're learning because we're learning along the way. And uh, you also get lifetime access to the magazine and $10,000 worth of SaaS perks. So... If that sounds interesting to you, you can go to founderclub.com and I'd love to see you inside and connect further. But now let's talk about today's guest. His name's Jonathan Siegel and uh, he's got some he's got a really, really interesting story to share. Uh, he's created a couple of companies, Right Scale, Right Signature, Right Cart. And he's essentially what I would consider a really, really good product guy. So he's had a lot of success as an entrepreneur and he's been really good at identifying trends at a very, very good time building an online business, generally software. And each one of these companies has an interesting story, tale and progression to share. Uh, he really knows his weaknesses and he knows his strengths. And you'll learn about how important self-awareness is, which is something that we've never really touched on that much when we're speaking to guests. And you also understand, um, you know, what it means to actually bring a CEO in your business. Uh, that's something else we haven't really talked about as well. So really smart guy, a ton you can learn. He uh, runs a venture, he's an angel investor, and I think he has a fund as well. So super smart guy all around. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this episode. All right, that's it from me. If you are enjoying these episodes, also please do take the time to leave us a review 
wherever you're listening, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. It helps us more than you can imagine. And I know you must have a friend that's a founder. Please do let them know about this podcast. Uh, I hope it'll add value to their lives as well, if you can let them know. All right, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. Yeah, look, uh, the first question I ask everyone that comes on, Jonathan, is uh, how did you get your job? How did I get my job? That's a great question. So my start was when I was 12. I got my first computer, took it apart, and when I put it back together, it still worked. And at my age, that was like, what is it, 1989? So uh, being able to put together computers gave me my first job. If that was 89, geez, that was close to when I was born. Um, so, <laughs> so tell me, uh, what, what happened next? Like, like, uh, like, like what, can you tell us about how, how'd you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Yeah. So honestly, it, it, it feels like the same thing. And, and I'd say I've been playing on computers since, since I was 12. It yeah. really doesn't feel like a job as much as it just feels like I'm getting paid to do something that I would do for fun. Mm, awesome. So can you tell us about the companies uh, that you founded and, and started? Like, tell us about your first company. Yeah. So I had a, had a wide range of things that I've done all the way from that, that very first time I put together a computer, I, I ended up selling computers at a very young age. And then I found I could develop software on computers and people would pay me to do that. And I was delighted. And that meant that in my free time, I could create technical products because I, I love to create them. And more, most of them, I mean, these were things I did for myself, not to make money. And so they often, they really failed because, or they, they didn't fail. I mean, they, they come and bring them to life was sort of my goal, not making money from them. And over time, I started building products for other people and had a consultancy. So I guess my my first real company that I that I founded of, Substance was a was a consultancy when we built products for other people, and I ended up getting really good at at the executing of bringing technical stuff to life. You know, it, it when I when I look at how I've ended up doing things I've done, there some people in their life I think they create like a master plan and then they follow that master plan step by step, and I definitely didn't do that. I feel like looking at how things have happened for me, it's really a series of just accidents and really not not well planned out things that that I, I just sort of followed opportunity from one step to the next. So while I was doing my consultancy, I realized, you know, you have downtime. You got when you run a consultancy, you you might and, and we we grew to 75 people at our peak and we were in Ruby on Rails at the right time. And if you have extra people that you can't bill for, you say that they're on the bench. So if you have three or four really high quality developers that you work with and they're not doing anything, you kind of start brainstorming, well, geez, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we could solve one of these problems for us or one of these problems that we've seen from our customers? And so I think the period of, for me that it was most productive as sort of a founder was when I had my consultancy and had all this idle team. And at that point, we just built stuff and built stuff and built stuff. So, so it sounds like a, a notable software product came out of the consultancy. Is that what, what happened? 
there were there were a few. So the first one was something called Right Cart, and that was built because we really didn't want to build e-commerce um, sites anymore. This is back in two thousand five. And if, if you knew how to program in 2005, someone would say, I've got a great idea. I'm going to take my uncle's auto parts store and I'm going to put it online. So I need someone to build an e-commerce store. And someone else say, I'm going to, I'm going to make a custom, you know, flower arrangements and I want to put it online. And so everyone asked, was asking you to build these e-commerce sites and they're really boring as a, as a creator to, to build an e-commerce site. It was just very ta- tactical and technical and not a lot of fun. So we, um, we built a product, which we thought would put to bed ever needing to build another e-commerce site. And that was called Right Cart. And it was a shopping cart that was on the right-hand side of your web page. And it could go from website to website. And it was copy and paste. And you could build your own cart yourself. And um, and that came out of consultancy. And, th- and that ended up getting purchased by Buy.com uh, within the first year of its existence. Yeah, and that, wow. that that sort of set me down. It wasn't, a, it wasn't like retiring sort of acquisition, but it was, uh, it was, it was amazing still. But that, that set me down the path of realizing that I could sell companies. Mm, interesting. So question, how come you sold, how come you, what, what made you want to sell it? Because um, I, I talked to you offline before we hit record. Um, you wrote a really interesting article on, on startups.co around holding on and, and, and knowing when to sell and when not to sell. How did, like, uh, do you feel that you caved too early? Do you feel that you should have? Uh, waited out. Like, can you talk me through that piece of the puzzle around how you made that decision for right, right cut? Yeah. So I'm like, this depends on the person, right? For me, I had a really good sense of what my talents and strengths and ambitions were and what sort of even outcomes would be meaningful for me. And for me on that first company, the amount of money was not important to me. It was that I had achieved an exit, that I could create something that someone wanted to sell. And I think about now, many people I meet often say, yeah, I left money on the table, or do you feel like you left money on the table? I've never had that feeling. I never feel like I, I could have done more. I, I see it the opposite way. I see if I held it out of my strength, how could have it fallen apart underneath me? And I think all of us entrepreneurs, we have this really interesting challenge, which is we're going along this road and we don't have infinite visibility into the future. We can really only see ahead of us the distance that each each of us feel comfortable seeing. And for me, I tend to see things that look like uh, dead ends. And maybe it's, you know, my ability to scale a team beyond 50 people scares me. I, I, I don't like it. I don't have strength to do it. Or maybe raising capital isn't something that I want to do because I don't want to be beholden to, to a, bu- a bunch of uh, other shareholders. And so as, as I look at my opportunities, I naturally see dead ends um, from my perspective. But I know that other people in the same shoes uh, just see it as a cul-de-sac, right? You just you, you go around it. It's, it's, not, it's not a big deal at all to them. So um, I decided to sell because at that time, really my options felt binary. It really, I didn't have enough money to continue the product independently. The product wasn't making enough money independently. So it really would have been a raise money and go, go shoot for the moon, or it would have been a find an early exit, which is what I ended up doing at that time, because of this product's use case, it would be used by like bands on their MySpace pages to sell t-shirts and things like band paraphernalia. 
And so it was, we were wrapped up in this sort of like blogs being the center of content. I don't even know if you remember this, but like blogs were supposed to rule the world. And, and the same way like GeoCities was going to rule the world. We were in that awkward time where no one really was. There really weren't a, a massive amount of high quality content on, on blogs. It really was that, that yucky period where, where nothing really was coming together. And so in order for us to become a, you know, one path would be saying, hey, we're going to monetize MySpace. And there would have been plenty of interest to get funding versus, hey, we have, a, we have the opportunity to have a buyer and get an early exit, get a window under our belt. And that felt like the right choice for us at the time. Mm, that makes sense. So one thing that I find interesting that I have to ask you about is, is it sounds like uh, the amount of money you make doesn't really phase you. Well, you know, if you, if you do something because it's a creative outlet, the amount of money is not the goal. And, and I actually, I don't believe that every entrepreneur is running around thinking about how much money they're going to have in their accounts. I think every entrepreneur runs around thinking, hey, I want to bring this thing to life. I want to see, I want to create something bigger than myself. I want to see the thing that I create influence other people in the way they work and the way they live. And, and the monetary aspect is really only there, I think, because of the investment community. And because often when we do entrepreneur, we create a ton of economic value and other people see that and they want us to sort of capture that value. But as the actual entrepreneur, I know for me that I do things all day long that are not going to return me return, but I have to do it because it's inside me. I want to see things come to life. It's a creative outlet. I think that's that's very much the case for entrepreneurs. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's a little like that's actually funnily enough that's one thing um one of my mentors taught me is he's like you know once once you get your company to a certain point in terms of revenue he said that's the secret that no founder ever shares is is people actually don't really care about the money anymore they just really care about the culture and what it's like to work in that environment because you once you get to a certain point you know you're always you're going to you're going to be okay right like you're always going to keep generating revenue and you can get it to a certain point right. Yeah. And I also think that when we all come to the entrepreneurial journey from a different starting point, some people come from wealthy families, some people come from food stamps. And when you get to the point where you have a business and that business is under your control and it's growing, all of us are going to have a different point where we say, you know what, this is enough for me. I don't have ambitions to have yachts or, you know, finance a new private college or any of those things. Maybe it's just pay off my student loan or pay down my credit cards or just take a year off because of the the gift that I've gotten because of what I've been able to do. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. So tell me what happened next. What was the next company you created? Well, so I went through this phase where I created a, a bunch of, and I, I don't even say that there are companies. I'm, I created a bunch of products. These things really were like minimum viable products. They could accept a new customer to come on board if the customer sort of found the product on, on their own, but it really wasn't a whole business. But because of the time that I was entrepreneuring, this 2005, 2006, 2007, there just weren't any competitors. Like it was really hard to bring things to market. Amazon, this which has brought the cost to entrepreneur way down, and they 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 didn't really exist the way they do today then. And there weren't a lot of people getting funding at the early stages and coming to market. So I made a bunch of products, and almost without trying, those products 
on, you know, one out of 10, let's say, um, would turn into companies. And those companies went on to uh, one exited. That was the right cart. Another one called Right Scale was a cloud platform very early on. Uh, that they, they raised $75 million in, in just a couple of years. Then there was another company called Right Signature, which is an e-signature business that didn't raise money, but did become profitable very quickly. And all of those companies made me start to think I was like God's gift to entrepreneur, that anything I, any product I, or not any product, because a lot of my products failed, but that I had this predictable hit rate that if I started enough products, I would end up with a company and that company would be very rewarding for me. They would become very successful. And then I sort of had this rude, rude, un, rude awakening, which is that 2008, 2009, 2010 came and nothing worked then. All of, and I would have like more resources, more experience, more network than ever before. And yet everything I touched just sort of withered on the vine. And I, I was sort of scratching my head trying to figure out, hey, what's what's changed in the environment? Is it, is, it, is it me? And what I ended up doing is I counted the number of companies that were coming out of incubators. Because the United Y Combinator is sort of like the tier one incubator. And they have uh, 100 companies that graduate from Y Combinator every year. Then 500 startups, um, about a year or so ago, I, I heard they'd done four, 1,400 startups that they had, they had financed. There's Techstars, there's AngelPad, there's every major city around the globe has a regional incubator. And my, my calculation was that there were 10 companies graduating from incubators every day. And so what had really changed was maybe not my ability to entrepreneur or to execute, but that I now had competition on innovation. And that there was, there was so much innovation that just building something or building 10 things was no longer differentiating. It no longer meant that my products were likely to become companies. And, and I, I think that that really put a close to the, like phase one of, of, of my professional career. Mm, interesting. So you believe that it was just the landscape, that it's a much more competitive environment now compared to 10, 15 years ago? Oh, I think I am. I pulled the lottery ticket. I happen to be at the right place at the right time. And the quality of products that I was bringing out back then, would, would they, would they were, they'd be laughable now. I mean, even, even if I use modern tool sets, just we, we really didn't have to be that sophisticated or deliver that much value to ignite a real business opportunity. And today, it's almost the opposite, it feels. You have to do everything right just to find that niche that's going to give you enough love to grow a little bit bigger and survive. Mm, that's interesting. So talk to me about, was it right scale was the one where you had some, I guess, co-founder relationship issues or challenges? <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly did. So right scale, this is an interesting one. So, you, you know, I had been building things that I enjoyed to build, and I really didn't think about them as sort of like investments. Through the consultancy? So, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but you, you still, like you, during this period, you've always had that consultancy or? Yeah, so the, the, the actual, like what it felt like at the day was I had a consultancy right after college. And then in 2002, I, I just basically cashed the consultancy out. I, there was a lot of, there was some cash in the accounts. I thought I could retire. I was, you know, early twenties, uh, got, got a home in a plane in Santa Barbara 
And then I got married, had my first kid, had my second kid and my third kid. And I realized whatever math I had done when I thought I was retired <laughs> did not work once I had a family and, and a few kids. Uh, sold the plane, mm. sat down my wife and said, uh, you know, I got I, I got to go get a job. You know, I just planned terribly. I'm really sorry. And I tried to work. I tried to work for someone and um, it really didn't work out well. And then I said, well, what, what are my choices? And so, well, you know, I did this. I did this. Uh, consultancy thing before, maybe, maybe I should build products for myself. Cause I had thought being a consultant and building stuff that I did all the heavy lifting only to deliver this amazing product to my customer who then was going to go make so much money from it. And so wait a second, I can do that for myself. So we, we sold our home at the time, which was if you, when you have a family and, or if you have one, you see, that's a big commitment. And so it's like, no looking back, burn the bridges. I'm going to invest my own money now and build these products, which I know I can de-risk and, and bring in the market because I've done this before for other people. And it turns out the building of the product wasn't hard. That was actually really easy. The hard part was what do you do after you build the product? And, and, and that was sort of a, a loop I kept falling into. And even, even when we created the thing called Right Cart and got it into an acquisition, what happened was um, I was sort of pressed between um, you know, a rock and a hard place. On one hand, I had a young startup that looked like it had potential to be a good return for me. But on the other hand, my savings were dwindling and I had, I, I didn't have the money from the startup yet. So in order to subsidize my dwindling savings, we agreed to start doing some consulting while Rightcart was still being in acquisition. It was a long drawn out acquisition. And ironically, one of the people that I had spoken with to get a sort of another offer for the business was Amazon, because I thought Amazon was e-commerce, Rightcart was e-commerce. And Amazon said, actually, you know, we're going to be more of a cloud company moving forward. I, they didn't use the word cloud. They said technology company. And I, I ended up getting access to their cloud platform just at the, at the perfect time. And by doing that, I had the resources of my consultancy, which was coming together. I had the knowledge of the beginnings of a cloud offer. And as we started to try and use the cloud, we realized that there were tools that were missing. And we started building tools. And those tools ultimately became this company called RightScale. There was another professor in Santa Barbara, someone who had been, I think, chief architect at GoToMy PC had seen businesses at scale. He realized the potential of cloud right away. That was Thorsten von Eiken. And um, he and I became partners. So we, we sort of my consultancy and, and Thorsten partnered to create RightScale. And then what happened was that RightScale actually took off. It's sort of like a, a good, bad, a, a good, bad problem. Hmm. And then when the company and what taking off means is that it very quickly got investors that were banging down the door to want to throw millions of dollars into the company. And I was still trying to run my consultancy that was coming together and sell this other business called right card. And you know, sort of like spinning plates. I had very little time for the right scale business. And ultimately the founders, the, my co-founder and the CEO I'd hired um, sat me down and said, Hey, you can't have half the company and not be present in the business. And to me, I guess, you know, I was, I was really naive and, and I felt like really wronged and, and sort of, a, you know, um, just that, the, you know, my, my, my team was sort of like 
uh, kicking me out. It was a weird, weird mental feeling. Now I have plenty of perspective. I know that things like this happen all the time, but at, at the time I had none. I had none. I'd never gone through this stuff before. And ultimately that led to my departure formally and, and as a, a participant in the company. But there was a, a brief period of time where a tremendous amount of my my worth on paper was in this company, which I had kind of been ousted or I had the sense of being ousted from. And um, and, and that was really that, that was very interesting place to be. You know, when, when you and I imagine there's a number of people that are either working for startups that then get investment. And based on the investment round, you look at your shares and you say, oh my God, I'm a millionaire on paper. But it doesn't matter on your day-to-day life. You, you still just have to make do with whatever means you have at the time, because that paper is not worth anything to anybody in, until a, a, a sort of exit event actually happens. That company went on to be quite successful, right? right scale yeah they went on to raise 75 million dollars and here's where like success becomes nebulous right like on one hand very impactful company at and at at times in the evolution of cloud which is stellar really really incredible thought leadership came from the company um, hundreds of employees at, at the business and 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 raised a, a, lo- a lot of money so now it's, it's, I, I'm no longer related to the company. I believe they're they're doing well, but I have, I have no insight. But it's a, it's a good question as <laughs> to so, uh, whether the where success is, because that success you know, depends on who you are. For me, success ended up being sort of formalizing my exit, and I took a, a, a sort of a discounted sale of stock back to the company. But that was sort of a a huge exit for me at the time. And I think sort of facilitated a lot of other things for me into the future. If I hadn't done that, if I had stayed at right scale, I may have had, I may have today many, you know, multiples of my, um, you know, everything I've earned since then uh, on paper, but I still might not have any of it in the bank. So Mm -hmm. it just depends on, you know, what that path is, and and I think the the path that I chose ended up being right for me. With this stuff that happened with the uh, co-founder relationship stuff, what do you wish you knew or what might have you done differently? How would have you approached it? Do you think it is right if, you know, you're running multiple companies, you come up with the idea, you self-fund it, and then you you bring in like a CEO or, or a, a co-founder, do you think it is right to... Um, have that for for the other team members to have the expectation that you're living and breathing it. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, I think I was so naive of all things having to do with business that I can understand why. And I, I didn't act as maturely as I would have liked at the time. I was very, I was offended and I, I was hurt because I felt you know, my own team and, and, and company were, were leaving me. And now that I look back at it, it was completely reasonable. <laughs> if I were on the other side, I would, I would do the same thing. I just had no advisors at that time. And I wasn't in the Bay. So there was, there's a lot less access to people who had gone through this uh, to, to give me, to give me advice. And, 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 and I think that now in my life, 
I'm I'm very happy claiming my fair share, whether that's 2% or 80% of the things that I'm involved with, because I know at the outset how to express the value that I'm going to bring to the company. But I think back then, the value that I brought to that business really was probably maximized in the first six months when I, I did have bandwidth and I was being present. And the minute I was no longer there, I think my contributions should have been reduced. Because, I mean, look, it's, a, it's been 11 years now, and my teammates are still there. Like they, they really were committed for the journey. And it's something I talk about. I say, often when we create companies, we create them in a democratic fashion. So we, we, we split the shares equally among the parties. And we might do it because we have someone who's really doing, you know, let's say, just a replaceable generic role. I don't know what that, that is, but whatever that is on your team, a replaceable generic role. And then you have someone who has got this incredibly specific, really critical to the, to the team, to the business role. And, and if you split the equity, the, the ownership equally, the rewards equally, that might feel really good at the beginning because we want to create teams. But when you're three years in or five years in and, and the person who's sort of realizes that they're, they're special, they're a critical component of the business, they can't leave. And that, that it, 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 it begins to be unfair and people start to realize it at some point in the journey. And, and it's only natural that there, there's a reconciliation if you don't start the company correctly. And looking back in hindsight, the company wasn't started correctly. And it was the absolute right thing to do to change that, that ownership. But it just really didn't feel good to me. <laughs> maybe that's a maybe that's a message that you know when when you do get, end up and we all do when when you create companies and if you don't if you do, if you're sitting down with someone and you say hey let's just split this or you have four people let's just split this equally if those words come out of your mouth you are creating a problem for the business later on into the future because there's no way that that is going to be the right equitable split. One thing I say is if we start a business together and you can leave but I can't then I definitely need much more of that upside than you do. Because if I leave, the business dies. But if you leave, then you're kind of like on my coattails, right? So there, there needs to be a different set of equity and ownership based on whether or not those parties are needed into the future. And I really wasn't needed by the performance of the business. I was not needed. Hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So... How did you start right signature, and and how come always the right at the start? Because people would think people would think that it's all connected. So the right cart, like the brands was, are all connected in that sense. I know, I know. So the right cart was a right. It was a shopping cart on the right hand side of the screen. I didn't name it. One, one of my so the, the designer did the right side of the screen shopping cart, and then right scale comes along, and I. I was adamant. It's, we called it AWS console because it was based on Amazon Web Services. And then we got a cease and desist, a nice one from Amazon saying, you guys got to change the name. And so we call, I want to call it scale centric. And my partner in the business at the time said, how about right scale? And I said, no, we can't. That's so cheesy. Right cart, right scale. I mean, no, it's just, it, it's cheesy. But they did it and they, they won the vote and then they raised all this money. And I said, well, okay, you know what? That might be a good idea. Maybe this right thing is a good idea. And at that time, I had bought like 700 domains that began with right. And that has been a pool of 
company names that I've gone back to again and again with right signature. We, my, my wife and I were in Munich and it was a Friday night and we were staying at a really nice hotel. And I got this notice from right scale who I was, they weren't particularly cozy with me by that point in time. So I didn't really have a lot of warning and I got these documents and they basically said, your signature is required to close a you know, $13 million fundraising. And I needed to get that signature back that day, but it was Friday. And in, you know, I'd gotten that in afternoon in Pacific time, Pacific coast time is let's say three o'clock in the afternoon. That would have been was like eight hours, like 11 o'clock at night in Munich. And so I, I saw there was a PDF attached and I had asked if I could send an e-signature. They said, no, they actually said, no, they couldn't send an e-signature because I knew that they existed. And at the time, an e-signature looked like an e-signature. It's sort of like if you, if you used one of the big services, and I think there are two of them, they would put like a box around your signature and a, a border on the document and say like, this has been like e-signaturized. And it was like written all over the document. So it's pretty clear that it was used in e-signature. So I said, oh, I can't use those services. So I tried to go down to the business center, but it was closed. And I tried to have my office fax it to me, but like international faxes for some reason are a pain in the butt and it didn't go through. And I tried to look up at Kinko's in Munich, but this is, you know, nine years ago and I could get a beer at probably 10,000 places, but getting a printout, I, I just couldn't find anywhere. So eventually I looked down at my computer and I had had a, um, you know, a trackpad and I thought, well, wait a second, what if I, what if I do this? And um, what if I scribble my signature on the trackpad, copy that signature onto the document, onto the PDF, send that document with the signature to my office in California in Santa Barbara, and then have them fax it over to the attorneys. Because they, they did say that they would accept a fax. And so how is that any different? And I'd, I'd actually studied a little bit of contract law, and I knew that this focus on a signature was all just business procedure, but was not the law. That the, the law allowed any mark, any s sign of your intent to be a signature. And that, that in 1989, there was a Digital Signature Act put in place and that that would allow me to just say on the email, I agree. I wouldn't even need to, like, signing is archaic. It, it doesn't serve a purpose except to make us feel good. So I knew that the things I was doing were legal. I was trying to simply overcome the attorney's objection to seeing e-signaturized all over the document. Anyway, in the end, that, that thing that I, I did that was copying my signature onto a document, having my office fax it to the attorneys, and the attorneys accepted the, the documents and the financing went through. And I said, what, what a silly thing to have to go through to get a document signed. And I said, I never want to be in that position again. And after that, we did a small, tiny project where we reused some things that were already laying around in our consultancy. And we made a simple one-page site where you could upload a document, like a PDF, and you'd see it on the screen, you'd sign, and then the signature wouldn't even go on the document. It would kind of go on a notary page attached behind the document because that was really easy to do. We started using it in our consulting business, sending our proposals, getting our customer approvals that way. And we started to see our customers sign up to use our service. And then very quickly that snowballed into becoming a real business. Mm, I see. So what happened up, what happened next? Like, uh, do you still run right signature or? So I learned a lot from my right scale um, adventure on how to secure my value and where I was good and where I was bad. And I, 
I realized that with Right Signature, it did need that dedicated team in the same way that Right Scale had needed a dedicated team. And there was a, it's someone in Santa Barbara who I knew sort of socially, and we were looking at business opportunities together, uh, someone named Daryl Bernstein, and he ended up becoming the CEO of Right Signature. And, you know, that was an, um, amazing to see me working with a team where I stayed in alignment. I was able to support the company into the future, made room for the, the team to sort of have the equity and, and upside they needed to thrive. And that business grew profitably for, I think it was uh, six and a half, seven years. And um, a few years ago, it was acquired by Citrix. Wow. And you still had a big chunk of that one. I still, I have to say my, my CEO and the team at Right Singer was incredibly good to me. Uh, just throughout the journey, um, could not have had better partners and um, you have a tremendous amount of respect and appreciation for what they did. Yeah. I'm curious around the CEO piece. You seem to be quite comfortable getting a CEO into your companies. Um, so you're kind of more kind of the creation product guy, but in terms of operation growth, maybe not so much your thing or scale. Tell me about kind of because uh, getting a CEO in your business is not easy to uh, uh, one that you someone that's amazing that you can trust that's solid that cares and as much as you would as a founder so tell me can you talk us through because I know we have to work towards wrapping up but can you talk us through kind of a, a rule book there or, or the things that you look for or or how you do that that's a really good question I'd say because of the way that I want my businesses to to grow I look for someone who's actually really like tangible and concrete and someone I can work with. How do you know though? How do you know if they're tangible and concrete? Ah, yeah. So if you, there's really two mindsets that I see. Often I'll meet someone, they'll say, you know, we're going to have to hit this out of the ballpark. We're not going to be happy if we take half steps. You know, it's sort of like all this talk of like grand vision and and huge outcomes. Um, Those are not good fits for me. On the, the other side is, hey, we're going to do these very simple measurements. And if we get a measurement that's, we're going to try and acquire customers in these three ways. And if one of the channels gives us a good return, then we're going to go more on that channel. And this is like down to earth and concrete on on one hand versus like, we're going to hit out of the park. Visionary. Yeah. yeah. Big dreamer. Yeah. Yeah. I don't resonate with the visionary dreamer. I resonate with the sort of nose to the, to the ground, um, just going to grind this out one way or another. Uh, let's you know use the data. Let, let's one foot in front of the other. That kind of mentality, and plus a good interpersonal fit, it has just been a recipe for success for me. Interpersonal, like you know that we that we have the good. We get into a conflict early on, and that we're able to conflict resolve, early on. Yeah, and that we're able to resolve the conflict. Oh, right, so I mean, bashing heads is okay. Bashing heads is great. It's it's how you work with one another in that process, right? If you, if it becomes like a emotional attacking, you know, your per- personality, uh, that's not good. If it can be rational and you know passionate, but ultimately based on sort of logic and truth, then 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 those type of that that is a mixture for great outcomes. Mm, and there's that mutual respect that if you do bash heads, you still respect each other, and it's just about the love of the work yeah i mean like it's a constructive conflict right yeah got you 
Okay, so we have to work towards wrapping up. I know you did start uh, a venture fund. Is that correct? Uh, is that after right signature, or you did some other things? Yeah, you, so I did have I, I did begin angel investing um, during that period where I was sort of wondering how I could apply myself because I had no uh, ability to entrepreneur anymore, and and I stumbled into what I do today. And what I do today is I actually I purchase and operate small early stage companies. And about wow. half of these are side projects from say consultancies or someone who's had a project over a weekend that's sort of grown bigger than where they ever thought it would get to. I acquire those and grow them or venture funded startups or incubated startups that the majority of incubated and venture funded startups fail. That's that's a truth. And so I'm often now a home for those businesses that are failing the investor expectations, but are not failed businesses independently. Yeah, got you. So you have a team behind you that, and you have a system and a framework in place to to scale them and get them on track. You got it. It's like you were watching me today. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, um, oh, that's a good question. Then, all right. So, can you tell me the th- five key things that you look for in a company that you would buy early stage? that uh, I, I guess winning elements in an early stage because then that will help people that are listening that are in their early stages if they know they're on, on onto something. Yeah, so I, I certainly can. I sort of four, four things that are requirements, and these are me where I see my strength and economic value, but these won't be for everybody, but I think they'll still be helpful. The first one is I only look at SaaS businesses. So these are software as a service companies. And, and when you look at technology, there's actually a lot of technology that doesn't fall into that bucket. The second thing is that it has to be recurring revenue from small businesses. So that means that it's not once-off transaction charges or ad-based, but actual billing accounts that act like an annuity because they get paid again and again every month. And small businesses, because I know how to acquire them. I know how small businesses think. And I really, I don't understand consumers. You could have offered me to buy Snapchat a hundred times all along the journey. And every time I would just say, I would never do it. <laughs> I, I don't understand it. So a small business MR. Third thing is 80% achievable gross margins. One of the great things about technology is that we are ultimately more optimized than whatever people were doing before they adopted technology. And what that means is, for instance, if you're going to send e-signatures before I might have to print out paper, ship the paper to someone, have them sign it, have the paper rekeyed. There's a lot, lot of process and cost in that. But on a e-signature service, it's just moving a few bits on the server. And a big customer on an e-signature service might only use it a hundred, maybe even a thousand times a month. That doesn't take a lot of bandwidth, doesn't take a lot of server server time. So the actual true costs of supporting a e-signature customer is very, very low. We're talking you know, margins of, of 90% plus. So when I look at businesses, I'm looking for 80% achievable margins. You don't have to be there today, but there has to be a path to get there. And again, these margins would be your total revenue minus your costs. Yeah, gross, not net. Yeah, just your gross margins, exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. And your direct cost. Thank you. And then that, that's number three. The fourth thing is that the business can't have retreating revenue. So whatever the business is doing in terms of their revenue amount, at the same time last year, it was the same or less. 
And, and, and that just means that there's no downward trajectory. There's so many reasons why a business starts to lose money, lose customers, and none of them are good, and they're really hard to recover from. So that, that's the fourth thing. And then the fifth thing is that there's latent capacity in the business. And an example there is we've bought companies where there's a massive amount of emails that have been collected in the business. Maybe there's a freemium offer which encouraged people to come and kick the tires of the company. And when we talk to the, the entrepreneur who might be running the business for us, we, we can ask, hey, you know, what happens? What's your response rate when you email to that email base? And surprising to me, but this is very common, is they'll say, well, we never emailed everybody. And there's a million reasons why they didn't do it. Either it wasn't their talent or they thought they were bothering people or they didn't have the content to share. And But when you hear something like that, you say, okay, you've got this existing asset and you, you have not done anything with it. You haven't tried to monetize at all. Or another way to say that might be someone who's never done any advertising for their product. Those, those are all latent opportunities to improve the business. And the opposite of that would be if you show up and you talk to someone and they've done every trick in the book, they're like, you say, hey, have you done this? And they say, yep. And you did they do this? And you say, yep. That would be worrying because there's nothing for me to improve. There's, there's no way for me to improve the business. So those are the five things. Mm, awesome. Love it. Well, look, um, last question, Jonathan. This is a great conversation. I uh, really enjoyed it. I know you're just about to launch a book. Um, tell us a little bit more about the book and where people can find out more. Well, thank you for that, Nathan. The book is called The San Francisco Fallacy. It's a collection of stories and lessons that I've learned over my years of, of being a founder and investor and a failure and many things I've done. And they're sort of rates in the grass ahead that most entrepreneurs in technology will face. And I try and point them out so that you don't step on them, or at least when you do, they don't hurt as bad. And, and really, the biggest takeaway that, that I, I want to get across is that a failure is a natural consequence of having a startup. And I've been through it. It feels horrible at times. It's miserable. And if you are in a startup or considering one, reading the book will hopefully make you feel like you're at least not alone, that failure is actually the majority outcome. You shouldn't be surprised. No one else is surprised. Um, and uh, hopefully you can get some comfort from that. If not, avoid some of the other rates that are out there uh, in the midst anyway. Again, the book is San Francisco Fallacy, and you can find it on Amazon now. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Jonathan, and uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Nathan. The Founder Podcast has come to a close, but it's not time to sleep. It's time to hustle. Download the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine for free right now by visiting foundermag.com slash Branson. Again, that's an absolutely free download of the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine containing an exclusive interview with the man himself. It's only available at foundermag.com slash Branson. So download it now and we'll see you next time on the Founder Podcast.